The 16th chapter of Matthew records what may well be the most important question any of us will ever answer. While in the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Just who was and is Jesus? The physical corpse of Jesus decayed as all corpses do. Any story about a missing body developed only later in response to Christian claims about the resurrection. Either Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be, or the whole Christian faith is futile and the whole Christian message is vain. Who do the people in Galilee say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. They will not believe that he's dead. They know that he's dead, many indeed. But they say you're John the Baptist alive again. Yes. Yeah. And who do you say that I am? I see you are the Messiah. the Son of the living God. Oh, so this is Jesus Christ. I am really quite surprised. You look so small. Not a king at all. We all know that you are news, but are you king? King of the Jews! What do you say? What do you mean by that? That is not an I just think he was an intelligent man, as, as many prophets were, and that may be the end of it. And I also believe that he'd studied with Buddha. I think he was a prophet, definitely, definitely a moral leader. He was a son of the living God, you know, he, he taught with authority, he spoke with authority, and uh, he, he, he spoke with the power of God. He was a historical figure, and everybody's beliefs uh, belong to them, inside them. Somebody that they believe in, they have faith in. Uh, they can express this however they want to. Uh, if they believe in the person, then great. That's, that's good for them as long as it gives them good moral values. Um, he was God incarnate, part of the Trinity. And he um, came down to earth to do God's will and to set things right with man and God in that relationship. He claims to be the Messiah. His disciples claim he raised a man from the dead. Impossible. And not when you're the son of God. Is that who you claim to be? Who do you say you are? Do you claim to be the son of God? It is you who says it. You know, a lot of people will say that Jesus was a great teacher, but yet they'll, they'll totally deny the, the central foundation of his, uh, of his teaching, that he was the Messiah, who he was, that he was the son of God, that he was going to come here and die for our sins. Basically, I see no difference between uh, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, uh, or excuse me, Allah, um, 
being God for the Muslims, uh, Muhammad being the prophet or Jesus, whichever the case may be, uh, Buddha, they're, to me they're all the same person. If for nothing else, then I guess Jesus would be a symbol of uh, extreme Nietzschean will, will to power or whatever, like somebody who just had an overwhelming ability to impress upon people a political and social agenda of moral uh, internalism maybe. I don't know that his life and death actually happened, so I really can't give you a good answer. If he had actually lived and died, it probably would be a very important event, but I can't prove that that ever happened. Jesus Christ means nothing to me. I don't buy into that crap. I don't go to church. Personally, it's my reason for living. Like, I just, it gives me such joy and it makes me so happy to live. And it's just hope because the world is so dark and with him, everything is possible. Following his example, simple, you know, treat your neighbor as you wish to be treated and, you know, love everyone and love yourself. Um, he's just kind of a way to live, kind of a credo. In the beginning was the word message from the of the word. I believe that Jesus Christ did not make that claim and that I do believe that uh, he respected Judaism which was a religion before Christianity and Islam came afterwards but I do feel that if he, Islam had been present that he would believe that that was a way to God as well. Uh, I think he was a way not the way. There's, uh... I think it would be kind of offensive to other religions if, if he was the only way. I think C.S. Lewis probably said it best when he said Jesus was one of three things. He was either the biggest liar in history, he was completely delusional and he believed something that wasn't true, or he was actually right and he really was the Son of God. Jesus, you know, if there is a God, if he is looking down on us, would really be happy with um, the amount of different religions and different beliefs that are going on in the world today. The problem for me is that there are other figures who've made absolutist claims as well. And while there's a lot more people lending validity to Jesus' claims, uh, I have a hard time saying that his are the right ones. Christianity is the only religion with the boldness and the strength to stand up and say that our founding father conquered death, rose from the grave. No other religion does that. And that's all that I need to know to know that I'm serving a real and a true God. Remember, remember. I am with you Even while church attendance and belief in the historic doctrines and teachings of Christianity are on the decline throughout much of the Western world, interest in spiritual things is actually on the rise. And Jesus remains very popular with virtually every major world religion, claiming him to be a prophet or ascended master or some type of spiritual guide. But with the growth of Mormonism and Islam, among other major religions that present a Jesus who's very different from the one believed on and worshipped by traditional Christian sects, the question, who do men say that Jesus is, prompts a more eclectic response than at any time in recent history. Add in the credibility granted by the mainstream media to the so-called Jesus Seminar, among other hothouse heretics, and the lines become even more blurred. Could Jesus walk on the water? I don't care. Whatever. To be quite frank with you, I put it in the same category as UFOs. 
And then when you factor in the popularity of books and movies like The Da Vinci Code, works of popular art virtually brimming with all manner of Gnostic and syncretistic errors that have plagued the faithful for millennia, it's little wonder that for millions of people today, the answer to Jesus' question is, well, whoever I want you to be. Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless, a mortal man. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew, Trashimbu. In this episode of War of the Worldviews, we're going to examine this critically important question in more detail, using clips from the documentary film, The Real Jesus, A Defense of the Historicity and Divinity of Christ. We begin with the issue raised by Sir Lay Teabing. Did Jesus claim to be God incarnate, or was his divinity conjured up by later followers of this new Christian religion? The idea that Jesus did not claim to be God is often put in a more subtle way. The word Messiah did not mean the Son of God. It simply meant the Anointed One. During the time of Christ, there were multiple schools of theological thought within Judaism. There were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees, and there were a number of minor theological parties. Some were supernaturalists. The Pharisees, for instance, they actually believed in life after death, and they believed that um, God would not only send a Redeemer, but this Redeemer would be the Son of Man, the Son of the Living God. This is language that uh, runs all through the minor prophets in particular, in Micah chapter 5, through the book of Daniel in four different places. Uh, there was a clear expectation on the part of some Old Testament writers that the Messiah would indeed be the second person of the Trinity, that he would be divine. There were others who discounted that. Some are sometimes thought of as fundamentalists, but they were actually anti-supernaturalists when it came to the Messiah. They actually believed that the Messiah would just be a political deliverer, and that's what they were looking for. Um, Christ actually used the divisions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees to divide them, <laughs> to, to, to highlight these theological disputes. And whenever he did, he highlighted the fact that the Old Testament clearly portrayed that the Messiah would in fact be the second member of the Trinity, the Son of the living God, begotten before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. I mean, there is no question the Messiah is not only prophesied, not only would he be born of a virgin in this town of Bethlehem, of the seed of David, uh, and a, you know, a host of other prophetic fulfillments, but that he would, in fact, be the one mediator between God and man, Emmanuel, God with us. This really goes all the way back to, uh, to the book of Genesis, when God, in the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, said, let us make man in our image. 
from there, the plurality of the, of, of the promises rooted in the plurality of the Trinity is, uh, is, is really the primary sort of lens that Jesus uses to, uh, to describe his messianic claims and his divinity. Jesus uses the language of the Old Testament about Elohim and about Yahweh for himself. All of the language of first and last, Alpha and Omega, is, is language in the Old Testament uh, that, that refers only to Elohim. Um, the, the language that, uh, that Jesus uses when he declares, before Abraham was, I am, it's a direct quotation from Exodus where the Lord God himself as Yahweh speaks from the burning bush to Moses. Um, this, is, this is language that is, uh, is irrefutably language that Jesus uses for himself. Nine times in the Gospel of John, um, when people are saying, well, we're, when the Messiah comes, you know, this will happen or that will happen. And Jesus, nine different times, says, I am he. At the end of the Gospel of John, we have this amazing scene where, where Thomas, in John chapter 20, falls down on his face after seeing the risen Christ touching his wounds. He falls down on his face and he cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him. Instead, he praises him. In John chapter 10, uh, some scholars have, have been able to count some 67 different inferences, references, or quotations from the Old Testament, just in that one little chapter. So it's, it's woven into the warp and woof of the very fabric of the New Testament. So to redact, to, to kind of graft in and to edit, would be a very clumsy process. All of that to say, the, the passages that are quoted in the New Testament by Jesus, by the disciples, by the eyewitnesses of the miracles of Christ are irrefutable evidence that those who lived in Christ's time, who walked with Christ, who knew Christ, and Christ himself made claims of divinity for Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. That is irrefutable. Well, there are any number of places where Jesus does claim to share the divine identity of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But I think perhaps the most clear is are the places where he identifies himself with the one like a son of man in Daniel 7. Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as the son of man, and the imagery he uses corresponds with that in Daniel 7. The most pertinent example, I think, comes from the time when he was before Caiaphas in the, in the trial before the Sanhedrin. And he said that you will see the Son of Man, meaning himself, at the, seated at the right hand of the Father. Having himself seated like that at the right hand signified that he believed that he deserved the same honor and accord that God himself had. And that can only indicate that he believed himself to have the same identity as God or as Yahweh of the Old Testament. So Daniel 7.13 says specifically, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Well, the figure in Daniel 7 uh, 
is portrayed as one given a certain amount of equality to God. He is seated on a throne with the Ancient of Days, and to be seated in the presence of God for them meant that you had honor equal to that of God. So this figure was clearly intended to be understood as in some sense equal to God. There are places where Jesus identifies himself specifically with a figure known from Proverbs 8 and also from the Jewish intertestamental literature called wisdom. Wisdom was considered a, a hypostasis or perhaps you could say an attribute of Yahweh and therefore equal to Yahweh in terms of identity. There are several places in the Gospels where Jesus identifies himself with this, that figure such as when he speaks of himself as uh, using the finger of God to heal people. That's, that's something wisdom would be expected to be doing. Perhaps the most clear example of Jesus equating himself with the divine wisdom of uh, pre-New Testament Judaism is in which we have parallel passages in Matthew and Luke in which Jesus says in one version, therefore the wisdom of God said, I will send prophets, and the other version he says, therefore I will send prophets. In both cases, he's speaking of himself in the role of wisdom, in the role of divine wisdom, whose job it was to send prophets. And in that case, he is clearly referring to himself in terms of divine wisdom. Before Abraham was, I am, would be a significant claim in as much as it would give himself pre-existence. Uh, the I am phrases are often connected with uh, Exodus and the burning bush episode in which uh, it is said to Moses, tell them that I am has sent them. Now since, since the, that was initially studied, uh, connections have been made rather to I am statements made in Isaiah in which statements are made by Yahweh and Jesus more or less alludes to them when he makes his I am statements. Nevertheless, the effect is the same. When Jesus says I am, he is alluding to himself in terms of the divine identity. Jesus is the theme of the book of Isaiah. In fact, in John chapter 5, not only in the book of Isaiah, but Jesus said, the scriptures bear witness to me, uh, referring to the Old Testament. Um, it's not just that there's a messianic prophecy here and there, but all the persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear witness to Christ. The Old Testament is one landscape crowded with foreshadowings, intimations, hints, portraits, profiles of Jesus Christ. The scripture is very clear. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet says of the messianic figure, he will be uh, mighty God, the everlasting Father. How could he be clearer? Chapter 53 is an obvious illustration of Isaiah's clear awareness of a sin-bearing Messiah. When he wrote, for example, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and so forth. So Isaiah looked forward to Jesus, the sin-bearing, suffering servant, about seven centuries after his own time. The great Christian scholar Benjamin Warfield wrote, It is quite clear at the outset that the writers of the New Testament and Christ himself understood the Old Testament to recognize and to teach that the Messiah was to be of divine nature. For example, they without hesitation support their own assertions of the deity of Christ by appeals to Old Testament passages in which they find the deity of the Messiah afore proclaimed. As an example of this, let's look at Psalm 110, which happens to be the most quoted Old Testament passage 
by New Testament writers. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus himself brought this prophecy into focus when he confronted the skeptics of his day. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus himself provokes the question in Mark chapter 12. He quotes Psalm 110, which is a psalm by David, and Jesus points out something very interesting. David is writing this. David is referring to his Lord, his Master. Jehovah Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord and Master. And Jesus says, now, everybody knows that Messiah is the son of David. Why does David call Messiah his Lord if Messiah is his son? And the only answer can be, he's both. He is both the son of David and he is the Lord of David. Let's look at Psalm 110 carefully. God addresses the Son as God. He tells us that the Lord Jesus sits upon God's own throne. We have to ask, who except God could sit upon God's throne? Jesus sits on God's throne because he always was and always will remain God in every sense of the word. Closely related to the question of Jesus' divinity was one of the primary signs that followed him and attested to the fact that he was no mere man. As he went about opening blind eyes, cleansing lepers, and raising the dead, among the many other miracles he performed as he went about restoring creation to its original intent, it was obvious to those with eyes to see that here was a man like no other. So how can one avoid bowing the knee to his lordship? Why, just deny those miracles ever happened. The Gospel stories describe Jesus impressing his followers by performing supernatural feats, walking on water, turning water into wine, and feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. But most scholars we talk to think these stories were invented by the Gospel writers as advertisements for Christianity in its early years. Each of the Gospel writers is writing with a different purpose a very serious purpose. Matthew wants to unfold the Old Testament and show how Christ completely fulfills, perfectly fulfills, literally fulfills the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. That's a serious task. Obviously, for that purpose, he's not going to want to weave in any fiction. Lucan is an historian. Luke wants to demonstrate a certain chronology and verify certain facts so that the miracles, the wonders, the signs, the claims of Christ 
are never put into the category of mythology, but are clearly understood as a part of the narrative of what actually occurred. That's a serious task. To weave in uh, fictional accounts would defeat Luke's purpose. He was not an eyewitness. In fact, uh, we're told that like a good historian, he went out and did interviews. He sorted through the evidence. He threw out that which he thought was either superfluous or unsupported and only wrote what he knew to be a verifiable account. When we get to, uh, to the Gospel of John, what we see is that John is a serious theologian. He wants to extrapolate from the events the, 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 the ultimate theological value of those events. Again, to, uh, to kind of weave in fiction or mythology would have defeated his purpose. In each case, the gospel writers are serious. They believe what they're writing. It's, it's very clear. They make the testimonies themselves. Um, Luke wants um, the recipient of his history, Theophilus, to receive this, that he might believe. Um, Matthew is clearly showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Uh, John, at the end of his gospel, says if everything were written uh, that had occurred, that support this notion that Jesus Christ is God, it would take more books than man has to fill them up. Um, so it's clear that the gospel writers believed what they were writing, they were serious about it, and they were so careful to ensure that extraneous matter did not filter into their accounts. In the first century, sick people were thought to be possessed by evil spirits. Did Jesus really heal people? The way I would discuss miracles with someone who adopts a rationalistic viewpoint is to try and get at why they believe miracles don't occur. More often than not, they simply say they just don't believe in them because they don't happen. From that point of view, I try and get behind how do you decide when something actually happens in history? What is your criteria for deciding when something happens? And to see if I can find a consistent worldview on their part. In my experience, I don't find one. They simply have already declared miracles off limits. In that case, you're going to have to find the conversation off limits as well. There's a forced dichotomy between the natural and the supernatural that was created at the time of David Hume and the other Enlightenment thinkers. You don't see any distinction between the natural and the supernatural in the Bible. You don't see those words. You see a difference between God acting and man acting, but that's not the same thing. Now, historians have certain ways of deciding when certain events that are recorded are deemed to be historical, and there's certain criteria they go by. The miracles of Jesus fit all these criteria. For example, they are attested to in multiple independent sources. The fact that Jesus could do miracles is attested not only in the Gospels, but also by pagan sources like the critic Celsus, who admitted that Jesus could do miracles even though he attributed his ability to being an Egyptian magician. We also find the same thing attested in the Jewish historian Josephus. He said that Jesus could work wonders even though he didn't name specifics. Well, early critics of Christianity, like Celsus the pagan and like the Jewish rabbis, never denied that Jesus actually did miracles. It's only been in the past few hundred years with the Enlightenment that people have denied that Jesus could do miracles. The miracles also fit the criteria of coherence, which means they fit in with what we know of the historical Jesus otherwise. The fact that Jesus did miracles was a threat to the people who ran the temple apparatus because they considered it their job to broker the relationship between the people and God. 
When Jesus stepped in doing miracles, he was saying, I'm taking the place of these people and I'm brokering the relationship between you and God. And so he was a threat to the priestly order. And of course, they would want to get rid of him as soon as possible. One of the things that's interesting about the miracles of Christ is, number one, how few there were. Uh, Jesus didn't just sort of run around promiscuously doing nifty tricks. Uh, he also didn't do things that were particularly impressive. He was constantly uh, preaching the gospel in another way with his signs and wonders. He was demonstrating and validating the words that he said by the signs that he gave. So they were always filled with theological meaning. They were always fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy or satisfaction of certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Uh, they were demonstrations of his power over the unclean things of the earth. And he used that as a way to unfold his message. In a sense, these were parables that were reenacted. Uh, they, they, they were um, these sort of gospel plays before the very eyes of the witnesses. Now, if you're going to just make up a religion, you want fireworks, you want demonstration of power, Jesus doesn't do this. In fact, oftentimes Jesus will tell the person that he's healed, now don't go tell anyone. Why would he do that if, if he's sort of making this up, if this is a shaman, if this is a show? It, it makes no sense. And why would the gospel writers write in this way if they're trying to create some sort of mythological puff piece? It makes no sense at all. But if the signs and wonders are an unfolding of the purpose of Emmanuel, God with us, to reveal himself to his disciples, to build in them faith, to be a means of grace, to empower them to then carry on the work of the gospel after his resurrection and ascension. Then, then and only then, do the miracles make sense. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Note that Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, by showing John the Baptist that specific prophecy is being fulfilled. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah wrote of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. At the time of John the Baptist, we have a number of uh, different strands as far as what people expected the Messiah but nearly all of them expected some kind of king or prophet or priest, and certainly one that had amazing abilities, such as healing, bringing sight to the blind, or re-raising the dead. There were different ideas as to when and how this would happen, but there's very little doubt that it was expected of the Messiah figure at some point. Well, in the Old Testament, God is considered the master of everything that is a part of man. He's considered the master of the eyes, the master of the ears, and so he is the one who would obviously be able to control these things and heal them. And that would have to be a mark of the Messiah to be able to heal every part of man that has a sickness or infirmity within it. 
And one of the things that's happening in the Gospel of John is that a lot of people believe in Jesus, but they only believe in him as a healer or they only believe in him as a teacher. They, they believe in him as a great prophet. But in John chapter 9, there is a man born blind who, um, who through a progression of steps as he's interrogated by the Pharisees, as he's interrogated by his neighbors, as he's interrogated by his parents, and then finally he comes face to face with Christ a second time after his healing, we, we see that there is a progression in his thought. At first he's not sure who Jesus is. And then he kind of says, yeah, well, I mean, this guy has done something. And finally he says, surely he's a great prophet. And by the very end, he makes the declaration um, that, uh, that this Jesus is his Lord, and he falls down on his face to worship him. And, um, and through it all, Christ is, is gently leading him toward faith. Um, his disciples witnessed this, and it says they were amazed. If you take the very latest book that is written attacking the divinity of Jesus and the reliability and the authenticity of the New Testament books, a book like Bart Ehrman, uh, chairman of uh, the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's come out with a book, the most recent book, Misquoting Jesus. Well, there's nothing new in Bart Ehrman's book. There is no new set of arguments that has ever been uh, constructed since the days of the uh, ancient church fathers fighting Martian and all the other heretics. When you read the liberal attacks upon the documents of the New Testament and upon the divinity of Jesus and all of the other, the, the possibility of the miraculous, uh, divine inspiration, it all comes down to this. It's a very simple mental paradigm that we confront here between the evangelicals and the liberals. The liberals come to the Bible with their worldview already made up, and they impose that worldview on the text. You read a book like Bart Ehrman's or anybody else, or Bishop Robinson, Honest to God, any other critic, or Wellhausen or anyone else going back through the centuries, it's no different. They come to the Bible with their mind already made up about what is true. They impose this grid over the text of the Bible and they will scoop into these categories that which, according to their standard, is true and that which is not true. Then having done this, they find a bunch of other scholars who do the same thing and they put all this together and say, you see, the consensus of the scholarly world is such and such. Well, again, what is the method here? You come with your mind already made up about what you will accept and what you will not accept. So here's the method. Do you allow your worldview to determine what you will and what you will not accept as being a fact? Or do you come and gather your facts first and then extrapolate from those facts what you will construct as your worldview? It's which is the cart and which is the horse. Does your worldview determine what you will accept as a fact? or? Do you come with a, a, an epistemology of what you will accept as a fact based on something other than your worldview? Take those facts, put them together, and let the facts build your worldview. These are two opposite approaches. But of course, the greatest sign, the greatest miracle of all, 
was what became the very hinge of history. That Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead and the new creation began. As I read those stories, I feel terribly sympathetic for the followers of Jesus because I hear hope there, not history. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then what's all the fuss about? Why would his disciples live and die for a lie. Why would the Christian faith spread from a handful of believers, 120 in the upper room, 500 who witnessed the resurrection, why would that small number zealously spread their faith that there were, by the end of the Roman era, 20 million believers? Those are the numbers in this phenomenal spread of a faith that they knew was fraudulent? I'm sorry, you don't die for a lie. We have to explain two historical facts. We have to explain the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and we have to explain the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection to his disciples. Any theory of history that wants to explain how the disciples came to believe these things has to explain those two facts. The idea that the disciples would not die for a lie is a very common argument that our side uses. And it has a great deal of strength, particularly when we look at the social background of the New Testament. What the disciples were claiming in context was astonishing and incredible because Jesus, as one crucified, had been subjected to an incredibly shameful death. And as such, he had been judged by the powers that be to be completely unworthy of recognition. And by the accounting of the disciples and the people who lived at that time, God, having allowed this, would have said the same thing. This man is not deserving of any honor whatsoever. They would have lost everything and gained nothing by claiming something like this. There were much easier things they could have done, simply recognized him as a great teacher and started their own movement. That would have been extremely low risk. To go this far and to claim that he had risen from the dead was extremely high risk and had no payoff whatsoever. When we say that someone is going to lie about something, they're going to do it for some benefit. And the question that has to be answered is, what benefit the disciples get out of claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead? In claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, they were saying he deserved honor that the rulers of that age said he did not. And they opened themselves up, therefore, to every kind of social persecution. Since the beginning of the resurrection of Christ, there have always been... Uh, voices trying to uh, deny the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection is one of the most attested events in history. It's attested by witnesses who turn from being absolute cowards to being people that would not relent of the testimony they had that Jesus rose, that they saw the risen Jesus, even under extreme painful torture, their skin being ripped off, being burned at the stake, being fed to the lions. So this is, uh, these are people who previously, at the slightest uh, mention, would deny their own, <laughs> their own family and their own you know, uh, community, as Peter, standing in the courtyard when Jesus is being tried, denies that he's even from the same neighborhood. So these are people who suddenly get strength because they actually saw it. The testimony about the risen Jesus is the most credible event in history and as an attorney who used to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, 
if you had to look over the record, you'd have to say that this evidence is irrefutable. In his book, The Historical Jesus, John Dominique Crossan is clear about the agenda behind his attack on the truth of the resurrection. Remember that in Crossan's mind, the resurrection is not plausible and the gospel accounts are not reliable. Therefore, he uses historical reconstructions based upon what he believes might have happened. He writes, if you cannot believe in something produced by reconstruction, you may have nothing left to believe in. Crossan's attack on the truth of the resurrection in the big picture is really an attack on the nature of truth itself. According to Crossan, truth fluctuates from generation to generation. He writes, it is not that we find once and for all who the historical Jesus was way back then. It is that each generation and century must redo that historical work and establishes its best reconstruction. It is that Jesus reconstructed in the dialogues, debates, controversies, and the conclusions of contemporary scholarship that challenges faith to see and say how that is for now the Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. In Crossan's reconstructed version of the story, Jesus' death was accidental, the type of execution that the oppressive and arbitrary justice of the Romans might carry out on any given day. In the days following the crucifixion, one or more of the apostles may have invented a story about Jesus' resurrection from the dead in order to give themselves some credibility and then some followers of the apostles who just happened to be scribes may have recorded the event as though it were history, another unfortunate accident according to Crossan. But Crossan fails to answer some obvious questions. If the resurrection were a hoax, why would there be a Christian movement in the years after Jesus' death? If Christ's death were an accident, why would there even be a scribe who would want to record a distorted record of Jesus' death. Lacking answers to these questions, as well as any real evidence for their claims, the scholars of the Jesus Seminar speculate endlessly as to how and why the resurrection story came about. Some scholars think the resurrection stories were borrowed from Eastern pagan cults popular throughout the Roman world at the time, called mystery religions. And one of the things I believe that early Christians did is they took the model of the mystery religions. They took that story and retold that story as the story of Jesus. For centuries, we've, you know, had people attempting to hack away at the gospel, the detractors. None of this is new. And what's funny is that, that our generation seems to believe they've come up with some new evidence. Well, if any of this had, been, had any validity, uh, if any of the Jesus as a myth or Jesus didn't exist or, 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 or false gospels kind of perspective that people are building on in this generation, if any of it had validity, it would have been trotted out centuries before. Far better scholars, far greater minds, far better trained people have tried to disprove the gospel and they would have employed these, these arguments. But they haven't. And the reason is they have no credibility. So I don't think that movie producers and blog writers today uh, are going to be able to do what scholars could not do in previous generations. If the Bible is true, 
than it is the story. The devil doesn't have any stories. There are no real stories in, in the mythologies of the ancient world. Instead, there is the one true story that then gets distorted or diminished by all of the other cultures, belief systems, and doubters and skeptics of the world. So what that means is, is that when we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, um, reflections of and echoes of the flood story, we should expect that. I mean, if the flood story is actually true, then of course other cultures are going to have redacted versions of it. So to, so to talk about Jungian archetypes or uh, these kind of proto-myths underlying all of the, uh, the great myths of the ancient world is really to miss the most obvious point of all. If there is one true account, of course there are going to be variations and riffs off of that one true account that will exist in the literature of the world. Um, the, the, the claim of the Bible is that this is the one true story. To find derivative stories out there in other cultures only is supportive of that thesis. It doesn't diminish it in any way. Well, there are a huge lists of these supposed divine God-men that are said to have also been crucified, also been buried, also risen from the dead after three days. But I find each time I look into these that one of two things has happened. Either the information is completely wrong, in other words, they never actually were crucified, or what has happened is that the story of them being crucified happened hundreds of years after the time of Jesus and probably was influenced by Christian missionaries. One of the more prominent examples of someone who's written on this thesis are co-authors Timothy Freak and Peter Gandhi. Uh, they're a couple of British writers who wrote a book entitled The Jesus Mysteries. Uh, quite effectively for their symbolism, they put on the front cover of their book a picture of an amulet depicting Dionysus as crucified like Jesus. Appropriately enough, when you look into the origins of that amulet, you find in the very resource they used to get that picture that that amulet was declared a forgery. And that's not an authentic amulet depicting Dionysus. And so not, it's very appropriate, I think, that they have a forgery on the cover of their book. Well, the only one of these pagan godmen that really has any hope as a viable candidate is the Egyptian deity Osiris, who reportedly was killed, cut into several pieces, and then was put together again and supposedly rose from the dead. The problem with comparing him is that, first of all, it is not a resurrection in the Jewish sense. A resurrection, as Jesus underwent, was a case of a dead body being glorified by God and receiving divine energies that brought it to life again. Whereas in the case of Osiris, what happened with him was a function of the way the Egyptian gods worked. Their bodies essentially never died, and so you could put their bodies back together after they were cut apart, sort of like a Frankenstein monster. And that's simply the way things work. In the other Egyptian mythology, we have the gods taking off pieces of their bodies and lending them to other gods. The Norse god Baldr allegedly being crucified would be one of the least viable examples because the Norse legends would have to post-date Jesus and Christian missionary activity among those peoples by literally a thousand years. The writers of the New Testament also mention the mystery religions, most notably the apostles Peter, John, and Paul. What is being described here is Gnosticism, an Eastern cult that had followers the world over at the time of the Roman Empire. In the time of Jesus, even Judaism 
had succumbed to the effects of the ancient mystery religions. I once held to the desperate idea that Jesus was just a good man and that dead people never come back to life. But that was because I was spiritually dead, was locked into my own self-referential ego box, and simply would not have this Jesus rule over me. What changed? God had to raise me up from the grave of spiritual death. And when that happened, I knew. I at last had the eyes to see this kingdom, this new creation, and the Lord who was its firstborn. Pray for, and even more, be on guard against this wolf pack of skeptics and skepticism that now roams our culture, seeking whom they might devour. It is the attack on the Gospels by those claiming a connection to the Church that has garnered the attention of the popular media. The fact that there's no positive evidence for the liberal critics' supposed historical Jesus doesn't discourage the popular media from repackaging the claims of groups like the Jesus Seminar. It's startling that a small group of self-promoting liberal theologians using poor scholarship have been able to focus the power of media attention and present to an all-too-often gullible world their alternative Jesus for the true Christ of the Gospels. In recent years, there's been a flood of publications and shows depicting some sort of newly discovered secret or scandalous information about Jesus. These books and TV programs and news articles that represent their findings ought to be exposed as nothing more than self-promotion resting on flimsy scholarship. We live in a society where people love to buy up that which is novel. Fascinating fiction, you know, fun to read, but that's all it is, it's fiction. People come up with this stuff uh, and a gullible public many times will buy into it. And so when you've got a market, people will sell to that market. But it's the same tired arguments that they have used for generations uh, against the truth of Christianity. I've not really seen a whole lot of new information. It's just been repackaged. Many people had thought that the only Gospels there were were the Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But actually, there were many more than that. There might have been dozens, like the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip, just to mention a few. There wasn't one early Christianity, there were many. You know, all of these studies and these programs and these books uh, that seek to disprove the life of Jesus, disprove the Gospel, are really a result of two things. First of all, a passion in this generation just to be, not, not to rebel, really, to not be accountable to the Gospel. But second of all, it's, it's a result of this generation's assumption of expertise. Um, it's, you know, with the internet and with uh, resources so available to us and, and computers, people assume they can become experts on something in no time. All of these Gnostic writings, like the Gospel according to Judas, the interest in this in our recent history is a result of, um, of neophytes who just don't have any background, haven't done the hard work for decades, assuming that they've made astonishing discoveries when in fact we've known about these things for centuries. I think the circumstances of this manuscript coming to me 
were predestinated. It's more than a mission now that I think of. I think I was chosen by Judas <laughs> to rehabilitate him. Judas was asking me to do something for him. I mean, a Gnostic writing 300 years after Jesus that purports to be a writing of, of Judas, uh, essentially saying that Jesus you know, guided him or, or seduced him into a conspiracy theory, just has no academic credibility. And it's one of hundreds of such writings that have long been discounted. The problem is we're in a biblically illiterate generation. Uh, there's no, there aren't as many biblical scholars as there used to be, people who study these things in detail. And so they assume that when they find something like this, they've made some astonishing discovery that ought to rush right onto A&E. And the fact is, it just holds no validity at all. My grandfather always used to say, bright lights attract big bugs. If there's a light, all of the bugs are going to gather around it. And um, the light of Christianity gathers all of these buzzing forces. When Time Magazine, Newsweek, ABC, NBC, CNN, when they, at Easter and Christmas, trot out their obligatory religious shows, they are naturally going to go to the bugs, not to the light. Why? Because they're of the same tribe. There's an old couplet that goes like this, light obeyed increases light, light rejected bringeth night. And that is expressing a biblical truth. Uh, it begins in John chapter 1 that speaks of uh, Jesus Christ being the true light that lightens every man was coming into the world. And Paul develops it in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of uh, the invisible things of God being visible, clearly seen by the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. But Jesus also spoke of another strange kind of light called the light that is darkness. In Matthew 6, he spoke, Therefore, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? What kind of light can also be called darkness at the same time? Well, it's the light that guides your thinking and that you are pursuing to try to prove a point. And I think that's what the people in the Jesus Seminar are doing. All the liberals are doing this. They have a certain amount of something they call light, but it's actually darkness because it's a set of erroneous presuppositions that they are bringing to their study in the first place, and they're not even aware of it. They're not even aware of the fact that they are bringing to the documents of the Scriptures a worldview which they are going to impose upon or use as the standard of judging those scriptures and deciding which they will accept and which they will reject. It's not the evidence that does it, it's their a priori worldview that is doing it. That is the darkness that seems to generate a certain amount of light. They come out and write these books and they have all these words that scholars have uh, said and they say, see, this is the assured results of modern scholarship and they don't realize that it's all their own imaginations that they've constructed out of thin air. John Spong, an Episcopal bishop, is a prime example of reductionist thinking on the supposed historical Jesus. His position in books such as Born of a Woman, A Bishop Rethinks the Birth of Jesus, 
is based on the recurring theme that what really happened was covered up by the first century evangelists. Spong's reading of the story of Mary, the mother of God, is that she was really a teenage girl who was raped and became pregnant with Joseph participating in a cover-up in order to protect her. Such analysis prompted Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson to respond. Having a bishop with opinions like these is a bit like hiring a plumber who wants to rethink pipes. From Jesus' illegitimate birth, it's not a stretch for Spong to argue that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that the wedding feast at Cana was really his own wedding. While true Christian scholars have dismissed these creative imaginations as pure fantasy, many less discerning people who are nevertheless serious inquirers into the Christian faith are led to believe that the liberals reconstructed historical Jesus and their version of the origin of Christianity must have a basis in fact. Christological heresies, or errors about the person of Jesus Christ, are all around us in the modern media. Although Christians may soon forget the books, films, and TV programs of the skeptics, liberal heresy that distorts the true nature of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us for generations to come. That is, unless we act. If we, the true believers of our age, will only use the resources we've been given, we can confront the apostasy that has gripped so much of the church for the past 150 years. We can defend the faith. We can tear down the lies concerning Jesus that have blanketed Western culture. And then we can present the true Christ to the nations of the world.